Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Inside Asia podcast from the Center for Asian Democracy at the University of Louisville. This is Dave Buckley, CAD's director, and Paul Weber, endowed chair of politics, science, and religion. I'm joined today on the interviewer side of the mic by Dr. Ishani Dasgupta, CAD's postdoc. Ishani, how's it going today? Pretty good. All right. Uh, thanks to the leadership of our colleague, Tori Dahl, CAD's podcast channel has gotten some freshening up. Episodes are accessible on our website through the University of Louisville, as well as through Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search Center for Asian Democracy. Subscribe, review, and stay up to date on future episodes. Uh, today, we are very glad to be joined uh, by Professor Meredith Weiss to talk about the late 2022 election in Malaysia and uh, the early days of the political leadership of Anwar Ibrahim in the country. Meredith Weiss is Professor of Political Science and Director of Rockefeller College's Semester in Washington program at the State University of New York, Albany. Uh, she's published widely on social mobilization and civil society, the politics of identity and development, electoral politics and parties, and subnational governance across Southeast Asia with a special focus on Malaysia and Singapore. Uh, she's the author or editor of numerous books, including Protest and Possibilities, Civil Society, and Coalitions for Political Change in Malaysia, um, and the forthcoming uh, Mobilizing for Elections, Patronage and Political Machines in Southeast Asia. Her current projects include collaborative studies of urban governance and public goods delivery, of civil society in Southeast Asia, pandemic governance, democratic representation, uh, and a monograph on Malaysian sociopolitical development. Uh, Professor Weiss co-edits the Cambridge University Press Elements book series on politics and society in Southeast Asia, is associate editor for Southeast Asia for the Association for Asian Studies Journal of Asian Studies, co-founder and inaugural chair of the Southeast Asian Politics Related Group of the American Political Science Association and a co-convener of the Women in Southeast Asian Social Sciences Network. Uh, she's held visiting fellowships or professorships uh, across the region, Australia, Japan, Malaysia, the Philippines, Singapore, and within the U.S. Um, Malaysia is, is a fascinating and important case to examine right now. Uh, it's a case of democratic stability, maybe not thriving, but at least stability in a region with plenty of democratic erosion. Um, a major theme in our conversation that we'll get to in just a second is the complicated interest within this new governing coalition, uh, even though longtime opposition leader Anwar Ibrahim stands at the top of the government, um, the component parts are more complex. What stood out to you about our conversation, Ashani? Um, I was really fascinated by the way she articulated the different ways in which Malaysian politics and religion intertwines. And it's not a simple secular Islamist binary. It has so many complex gradations, so many different set of factors that lead the state to tilt one way or the other. And now with the coalition, we are yet to see which direction the government will take. Yeah, no, one of the really fascinating dynamics about the case, um, for sure, and about uh, Enwar in particular. Um, so without any further ado, let's get to our main interview with Dr. Meredith Weiss. Dr. Meredith Weiss of SUNY Albany. Again, thanks for joining us today. Thanks. Happy to be here. Uh, maybe you can get us started uh, with that event that put Malaysia back in global headlines anyway in late 2022, um, a national election that wound up with longtime opposition leader Anwar Ibrahim leaving the country. Um, can you just get us started by getting us up to speed first on what actually happened on election day and how eventually we wound up with Anwar in office? Uh, is it quite right to say that he won the election and, and how did we get to the, to the situation we're in today? Sure. It's not usually so difficult to say who won an election, but this time it definitely is. Um, and in fact, on election night, the assumption was that 
an alternative coalition led by Prikatan Nasional, the, Nas the National Alliance would, would form the government instead. So what happened was that the last four years in Malaysia laid the ground for a really messy landscape for an uncertain set of coalitions and for a very confused contest. So in 2018, the last election, Malaysia's 14th general election, so it's called GE14, this one cleverly, GE15 in 2022. So in GE14, Anwar's coalition won outright. So they formed the government. However, he was at the time that they won still in, in prison. He immediately got a pardon and was out of prison. But part of the deal in forming the coalition as it then was, was allowing Mahathir Mohamed, the former UMNO prime minister, so the prior government's prime minister, uh, to join the coalition with his new party, Bersatu, and to be the prime minister. The deal was that after a period of time, Amar would step in as prime minister. That didn't happen. It became quickly clear that there might be some succession issues, but a new government came into office with a sort of odd coalition that then collapsed in late or mid-August 2021, um, but just reconfigured. So by the time of this election, it was a bit of a mess. One of the key issues that laid the ground for, for the mess that emerged was that Amno itself was in a position it had never been in before. The prime minister, Ismail Sabri, was not the president of the party. That's Zahid Hamidi. Zahid Hamidi is still facing all sorts of corruption charges in line as part of the 1MDB investigation that brought down the former uh, prime minister, Najib Razak, who is now in prison for 12 years, serving a 12-year sentence. So UMNO faced credibility issues in the election. Those credibility issues helped Prikatan Nasional, which is Bursatu, again, formerly Mahathir's party, though he's no longer in it, helmed by Muhyiddin Yassin, the prime minister for a period of time from 2020 to 2021, but in coalition with PAS, which is the Pan-Malaysian Islamic Party, which is strongest on the east coast and northeast of Malaysia, and then Parti Gerakan Malaysia, Gerakan Rakyat Malaysia, which is a small, um, largely Chinese-based party that's generally strongest in Penang, but really not strong now. And in fact, it's essentially wiped out. So what was really a two-party coalition between PAS and Bersatu was able to form a Malay communal alternative for voters who wanted a Malay communal party, but one that was not extraordinarily corrupt. We can call this the Teal Coalition because their flag is teal. So we end up on election day, with this odd result in which going into the election, it looked like BN would probably manage to win, but it was assumed that the organizational machinery that UMNO and the BN largely has on the ground was sufficient that they would be able to get their voters out to vote. There wasn't a huge amount of enthusiasm for an election. Uh, the assumption was that people would be less motivated to turn out than usual. And in addition, there was a new constitutional amendment that enfranchised voters from 18 to 21 and introduced automatic registration of voters. So there was a huge increase in the electorate in the number of people eligible to vote. That said, those who had not previously registered were assumed to be less likely to bother to vote now just because they were automatically registered doesn't mean that they're motivated. So we didn't know what the turnout would be. Yeah, we assumed more that turnout would be key. Of that. Exactly, so machinery was going to be the thing. So elections called. It looks like BN should be able to pull out a win. And then 
the tide starts to shift during the campaign. It's a two-week campaign, very brief, but that's common for Malaysia. It's been shorter before. Pakatan Harapan, which is Anwar's coalition, did worse than last time, but not excessively so. So they ended up winning the plurality of seats. They had more seats than any other coalition, but not a majority. Um, next up is Perikatan Nasional, which is this teal coalition. UMNO leading the, the and, and, and its coalition, the Barisan Nacional, won only 30 seats, which is an astonishing drop. Again, out of 222, 30 seats, they are not that important in Malaysian politics in seat terms now. Then there are these coalitions in Sabah and Sarawak that had the East Malaysian states that had almost as many seats as UMNO, uh, 26, I think. And so we don't know on election night or for a couple of days thereafter, who will form the government. It could be that the coalition is Perikatan Nasional and the BN. It could be a coalition uh, between Pakatan Harapan, Anwar's coalition, and the East Malaysian parties. It could be some other configuration. And what we end up with is the BN, its longtime enemies, Pakatan Harapan, as well as the East Malaysian parties. So the core distinction here is that Pakatan won under 15% of the Malay vote, and the Malays are the majority of the population, versus Purikatan won overwhelmingly, almost entirely Malay votes. You know, it was a trivial percentage of non-Malay votes. So any government to be legitimate and to be stable at this point probably does need a strong Malay component, and the BN now provides that with Pakatan. However, this result has allowed Zahid Hamidi to cement his leadership as now the guy who didn't destroy Amno, which was the initial reading after the election, but rather who saved Amno by making a part of the government. So he's now a deputy prime minister. Ismail Sabri is a backbencher. He's still in the government, but he is fully demoted. That's awesome. So we're going to talk a lot about Anwar in sort of his approach to governing, but actually I want to start out with a question on UMNO, right? Like you've um, spent a lot of time talking about the resilience of political parties in your own research in Southeast Asia. Um, UMNO is one of the um, you know long-term survivors of party politics in the region. Um, and yet it's obviously not what it once was. And yet also it wound up coming out of this whole ordeal in maybe not as bad of a position as it could have. I mean, what's your read on how UMNO thinks about its positioning uh, going forward into the next like decade or so in the country? Oh, it's so hard to say right now. So UMNO in the last couple of weeks has dug itself into an anti-reformist corner or hole, I guess would be a better place. But um, anyway, um, so Zahid and his uh, deputy uh, have now made clear and, and the UMNO assembled masses have approved this, uh, that the top two positions in UMNO will not be able to be contested in the upcoming UMNO party elections. Were they contested, there's a good chance that Zahid could have been ousted from the party presidency and UMNO could have embarked on some fairly plausible internal reforms. Instead, Zahid will remain in position and he is really the one who defines now the party. So this happened in 2018 as well. UMNO did very poorly. They lost the election. Um, there were some within the party who called for reforms and they did not succeed in gaining those reforms. The UMNO party election that followed the general election saw a contest for the presidency of the party and 
Zahid managed to stay on top despite being part of what was termed the court cluster, this group of people embroiled in various corruption cases, most but not all associated with 1MDB. So we saw this failure for reform at that point. This time, Amno has really done poorly um, and has clearly lost the support of its Malay constituents. And there is a viable alternative. This is a big difference. There is another Malay coalition, Malay parties, not just an Islamist party, but a Malay party that looks a lot like UMNO because it's mostly ex-UMNO people. Um, and so the state, so let me backtrack a second. Again, I'm counting on editing. Um, so normally in Malaysia, state and federal elections are simultaneous, except perhaps in one state in East Malaysia. So sometimes they'll be off cycle. This time, because of all this political turmoil, not only did we have off-cycle uh, state elections in East Malaysia, but also um, in, in two states in the peninsula, in Johor and Malacca. Um, and then we also had states that decided to serve out their term and not follow Zahid's call for early elections. So the states not held by the government, of, by the, the BN, so states that were held by Pakatan as well as PAS, have held off on holding their state elections. So we have six state elections coming up this year. Um, and in those state elections, we may see what happens to UMNO. So UMNO and its now coalition partner, Pakatan, have just in the last couple of days confirmed that they will indeed compete together for the state elections rather than separately. Um, which means that if UMNO tanks, they can pull Pakatan down with them, is my cynical reading, but I don't think totally inaccurate. Um, in some areas, non-Malay voters still won't see Pakatan, for instance, as a viable option for them. It, there's really nothing in that party for them. So it's likely that in places like Penang, which is majority non-Malay, Pakatan will still win the election, would be my guess. But I think elsewhere we'll find an increasing trend of flight from UMNO, from party members who are not on board with the lack of reform within the party. And again, immediately after the election, when no one really guessed that UMNO would end up part of the government, despite rumors of negotiations between Zahid and Anwar before the, you know, before the election day, at that point, we had really strong calls from within the party itself for Zahid to step down as prime minister, to take the fall for having led UMNO to such uh, disrepair. So it's now, the party doesn't have a clear ideological premise apart from gaining power. Uh, it hasn't really had a clear ideological premise for some time. It has run largely on patronage. This election, it wasn't helped either by the fact that the party reportedly had far less resources to spend on the election. So um, was able to channel far um, lesser sums than is usually the case to candidates who are standing, less patronage, less treating people to meals and goodies and so forth during the election. So the patronage isn't there, ideological appeals aren't really there, and there's there are real concerns about corruption. It's, it's a big issue for Malaysian voters. Not as big as inflation and cost of living, but it's still up there with the, the top things people care about. And again, if they want a Malay communal party, which makes sense for a lot of voters, especially since the economy is so structured in communal lines, um, and they may have a clear self-interest in protecting that structure, then they have an option. They don't have to vote for the end. 
I uh, wanted to go back to what you said about anti-corruption because it's become such yeah. an important issue. Uh, so you've written a lot about the political salience of anti-corruption in the country and Ibrahim ca campaigned on an anti-corruption platform, which uh, obviously has a deep resonance now uh, in Malaysia. Uh, so can you give our listeners a little context on why anti-corruption is such a yeah. prominent issue in the country's politics and uh, things like the one MDB scandal and how they have implicated long-term ruling uh, party, the long-term ruling party? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question because corruption was less a theme in many ways in this election than last time. Instead, it was somewhat anthropomorphized in the form of Zahid. So all of these messages that one saw of a vote for X is a vote for Zahid. So for instance, this is perhaps most prominent with Kyrie Jamaluddin, who has in the last couple of weeks been expelled from the party. He was a reformist voice within UMNO. He was in Ismail Sabri's camp. So um, Zahid booted him to, he couldn't kick him out of the government. He couldn't deny him the chance to stand because he was extremely popular, unlike most people in UMNO, as the health minister who brought vaccines to Malaysia. So he couldn't not give him a chance to stand, but he kicked him out of his safe seat and made him stand in a strong Pakatan seat. He ended up losing, though he did quite well there. But so you had people like Kyrie who were calling for reform within UMNO, but Pakatan could campaign against him and Parikatan could campaign against him saying, a vote for Kyrie is a vote for Zahid. And again, Zahid represents corruption. Mm -hmm. So the reason that this matters is, you know, Malaysia has always had some level of political corruption in you know as most places do and this has been it's 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 always been a polity that has had some degree of patronage politics we don't see the sort of extravagant vote buying or endemic vote buying that we have in a lot of places you know you don't find parties for the most part going out and handing out cash there's some of that in in certain areas but that's not a dominant mode of campaigning in malaysia However, you do have a lot of credit claiming, which is doing things and, and saying, look, if you didn't vote for this party, this wouldn't have happened when actually it's a state project rather than a party project. You have um, abuse of the machinery of the state during elections. Um, so announcing new projects that the government will do if you vote for it again, um, or you know other strategies that really capitalize on the resources that the state has available for the incumbents to help the incumbent. And so part of the reason that the BN was able to stay in power for decades was using the resources of the state to its advantage and engaging in a lot of spending, you know, strategic spending. So that could be anything from announcing new bridges and schools and so forth during an election campaign, which isn't supposed to happen, to um, having concerts and dinners and other things that, again, aren't supposed to happen during the election um, and other ways of wooing votes. It's, this is helped by something that's distinctive in Malaysia. So the term money politics is a generic one. Um, most places that mean vote buying, uh, you know, actually handing out cash. And Malaysia, the larger usage is refers to party business links. So the parties of the BN have over several decades accumulated all sorts of corporate holdings. So all the major media in Malaysia, for instance, are held by different um, political parties. So, you know, the Malay media, the Chinese media, the English media, um, as well as all sorts of other concerns. Um, you have a huge proportion of the economy, also at the state level. So the Symbrials, other parties beyond the BN as well, is, held, is under GLCs, government-linked corporations, or GLICs, government-linked investment companies. Um, and politicians serve on those boards. So they get a retainer for serving, but they may also have 
significant stakes in you know the direction of the economy. There are all these different things that I can't describe in one podcast, but there's some great resources. Terrence Gomez is the best person on all of that. Um, but so there's a lot of corruption and a lot of patronage politics. Mm-hmm. So in the past, that in many ways has benefited the mass during the elections because there's a lot of sharing out of resources. Now it's more visible the extent to which part of Malaysia's economic malaise is related to corruption. This inability to get out of the middle income trap, for instance, is not helped by the extent of corrupt practices or just inefficient political business links. So the 1MDB crisis really brought a lot of this to a head in the 20 teens. And so we saw the final results of this really in GE14 in 2018, when Amno really suffered losses from this. So 1MDB, to put it bluntly, is the world's biggest ever money laundering scandal and just massive embezzlement. So, you know, billions of dollars. Um, There's apparently a Hollywood movie coming out of the Billion Dollar Whale, which is the book that, you know, tells the saga on the two Wall Street Journal journalists, Wall Street Journal uh, journalists almost won a Pulitzer. They were nominated for it for their reporting on 1MDB. It's just a super, super messy saga. You know, yachts and Leonardo DiCaprio and handbags and and just all sorts of nonsense. But basically lots of money taken. Lots of it found its way into Najib's personal bank accounts, which he claims ignorance of. He is again now in prison, lost his appeals for 12 years. He is still desperately trying to get out. His wife will probably end up there too. Um, Zahid may yet as well. Um, It's not just one person involved, although a lot of it was Najib and this guy Jolo, who's still on the loose. Um, And so that really was an unavoidable clarion call to do something about corruption for the Malaysian public. Uh, so I do I do want to ask a little bit about the opposition. So another way yeah. to think about these results is who is left in opposition, right? The the Malaysian Islamic Party uh, pass has become the largest single party opposition, winning yeah. 49 seats. Uh, what, if anything, is different about PAS's approach to ethnic and religious politics in the country? And uh, do you think this has implications for the way in which multi-ethnic, multi-religious politics will play out in Malaysia? Yeah, this is another great question. So PAS is the single, not just the single largest party in opposition, but the single largest party full stop mm-hmm. in Malaysians in Malaysia's parliament now. Um, interestingly, the second largest is the DAP, the Democratic Action Party, which is, you know, the arch rival to, to PAS in many ways. So PAS declares DAP to be communist, anti-Islam, and so forth. They're not. Um, they're to, they, they are social democratic party. Um, they're not communist um, and they're not exclusively Chinese either, nor are they anti-Islam. But still, it's it's an intriguing aspect of Malaysian politics that these two largest parties are the two most distinctive in terms of the niche they carve out and in terms of the ideological appeal. Um, so to have PAS as the largest party in opposition could mean a stronger voice for further Islamization of the polity. So Malaysia already has a dual legal code with Sharia and civil laws. Um, criminal law is unified. There has been a push to have uh, a separate set of hudud laws allowed, uh, which would be essentially Islamic criminal law as well to allow different punishments for Muslims. This is, there's been pushback against this as unconstitutional, um, all sorts of problems. Uh, on the one hand, there's just a lot of confusion about what the Malaysian constitution does and doesn't allow, what, courts have supremacy in what, or jurisdiction in what areas, but also concerns over, you know, in the most blunt sense, if a Muslim and a non-Muslim commit a robbery together, 
their punishments could be drastically different um, if this is enacted. And, and so there are just these equal justice concerns that arise. One likely development, and, and I, I'll start by saying though that in fact, PAS has been in the government since 2020 and it hasn't really done very much. So this actually became something of a campaign issue um, for opponents who could say, well, come on, you voted for PAS, you want to pass. They did nothing, they didn't push, they've been trying to push for this. It's a change to the constitution to allow who did penalties, for instance. They really didn't push for this while they were in government and why not, hard to say. Um, so one of the possible developments, because this has come up again, they've, they've talked about pushing for this in the past, is if a law comes up related to Islam, it's very difficult, you know, just in terms of the stigma involved for a Muslim member of parliament, regardless of their party, to vote against something that would that is defined or framed as strengthening Islam and as being in line with Islam. And so if, for instance, PAS uses its position together with Bursatu to push for Hudud law or to push for other ways of strengthening Sharia vis-a-vis -vis civil law or of further Islamization of the polity. So for instance, perhaps extending, you know, some rules that currently apply only to Muslims around dress or whatever else. There have been talk at different times of trying to make some of these national. There's always pushback of, oh, Malaysia is a multiracial, multireligious country, these things can't happen. But if there are provisions that are arguably in line with a dominant in Malaysia interpretation of Islam, it is hard for non-Muslim or for Muslim politicians, regardless of the party, to say that they oppose those strictures. And when these issues have come up before, especially on Hudud, you'll have any number of op-eds and arguments and so forth explaining that actually these are matters of interpretation, that it is, I think, that, if I remember correctly, there are only four countries or something like that in which any of these enactments actually hold and you know, Muslim majority countries, countries with uh, more, at least even more overtly Islamist governments don't support these enactments and so forth. That doesn't necessarily matter when you're asked to take a position that can be framed as voting against Islam and you are yourself Muslim. And so my sense is that PAS could take advantage of its position in order to push the envelope on some of these things. Whether it will do so is not that clear. It's, we don't really know how much active support there is within even PAS, among PAS voters for some of these changes. You know, Malaysia already does a lot to safeguard the sanctity of Islam, to, safe, to safeguard the sensitivities is a term that's usually used of Muslims and so forth. Um, and, you know, there are plenty of Muslims in Malaysia who are very aware that this is a multi-religious country and, and so forth. In addition, another sticking point here is East Malaysia. So again, East Malaysia, especially Sarawak. So Sabah now has a Muslim majority after a state-led Islamization policy, especially in the 1970s. Sarawak does not. And there, Sarawak has been resistant, partly because it has a much larger Christian minority than the peninsula, and also because just the way that religion and politics and race and politics factor has been quite resistant to further Islamization of the state. And Sabah and Sarawak are pushing and using their kingmaker status, which they now share with BN, um, to gain further rights, you know, sort of reverting to the initial agreement when they joined Malaysia in 1963, 
but they are using their position to push back against what they see as Malayan, you know, peninsular Malayan policies, including Islamization. So POS may be constrained actually by the fact of this, you know, sort of full stop at Sarawak, which has actively resisted declaring Islam the religion of the state, for instance, um, within Sarawak. And so it might be that the specific makeup prevents POS from doing this, but it could still be some awkward grandstanding. This religion and politics stuff is obviously close to my heart, right? Super interesting. Um, and so we've been talking mostly about past so far. I wonder that sometimes when outside listeners hear about uh, religion and politics in Muslim predominant societies, it's like, okay, well, are you an Islamist? Well, if not, then you must be a secularist in some way, right? Um, right. Anwar doesn't exactly fit in either of those descriptions. So I was wondering if you could yeah. give our listeners a little bit of context on sort of yeah. how political Islam has factored into his career over the decades. He's had a long career, obviously. I mean, how you would uh, categorize yeah. his relationship to sort of religion in the state? Yeah, I mean, Islam in Malaysia looks different from Islam elsewhere in terms of how it factors in politics. So PAS, the Islamist party, was part of the reformist coalition Anmar's wife was heading at the time when Anmar was first ousted from government in 1998-99. Um, they have been back and forth, the coalition. They've worked in coalition with secular parties um, and they uh, have, you know, PAS has vacillated between a specifically Malay ethno-nationalist and Islamist message and a PAS for all message usually centered around justice, Ka'adilan. Um, that that really argues for a different approach to finding sort of a common thread across religious traditions and that unites Malaysians. So Anmar is really part of that tradition in many ways as well. So he got his start in the 1970s as a student leader and then as a recent graduate, pushing for things like Malay language and so forth. So it was definitely Malay rights, but then also for um, Islamization. So he was the leader of this group called ABIM, the Angkatan Malaya Islam Malaysia, the Malaysian Islamic Youth Movement, which still remains very strong, which still has, you know, there are a number of different ABIM leaders who have moved into formal politics. Um, they're across political parties, um, but ABIM generally has, you know, sort of I, I, my sense is that more Abin members still support Ammar and Kaadilan than other parties, but they're, again, they run the gamut. They're throughout government. Um, and so much of his start was as an Islamist activist, as pushing for greater Islamization of state and society. And when Mahathir brought Ammar into his government in the early 1980s, it was specifically to play that role, to in some ways yoke the power of Islam ideologically to the state, and in other ways to kind of fulfill this aspiration for a more um, Islamist-centered government, even though Malaysia is not a theocracy. So it's a it's an odd balance in Malaysia from recognizing that there is um, a common frame of Islam over the state, even though there isn't a requirement that all people be Muslim. That's not the expectation, and so forth. And so that that reveals some tensions and causes some tensions um, in its own right. And Anwar's had to navigate that. So for instance, in the late 1990s, most people know he was charged with sodomy. It was mostly presumed trumped up charges. Um, this was something that could be framed as being totally inappropriate, specifically for an Islamist leader. Um, and that was part of, it's presumed part of why that was the charge as well as corruption and so forth. But once he got out of prison that first time he, came to the US and elsewhere and was 
doing a lot of speaking and, and so forth about Islam as um, a pro-democratic force and, and this as a different sort. It's sort of like the civil Islam that Bob Hefner writes about mm-hmm. for Indonesia, right? So much the same frame. And he still continued to navigate that. So his coalition, Pakatan, is not an Islamist coalition. There is an Islamist party within it, Amana, which is a splinter party from PAS, the so-called Erdogan wing, the progressive wing of PAS split off at one point when the party left the coalition that it was in with what's now Pakatan Harapan, Anwar's party and, and partners. Um, and that wing remained as Amana. So there is an Islamist party that takes what had been, again, the PAS for all justice frame of the past in order to say, look, we want progressive values. We want democracy and all that. And that is in line with Islam. And so Anwar himself treads that line as well. So as it was actually just very recently, um, he, there was an apology from Paz, if I got this correctly, basically saying, yes, he does not support LGBT rights because they were claiming, oh, he will, partly because of these sodomy charges. Anwar has never, ever supported LGBT rights. Um, there are those who consider him to be very progressive and who will assume this. That is just not at all the case. Um, and so some of that is because he does need to maintain this, but and, and not just as a political ploy, my guess is it's sincere, right, um, of supporting what is taken as an Islamist baseline within Malaysia, but also just because that's never been part of his message. Um, and so there is this delicate balance between what um, a specifically religious frame around progressive values would call for and what some others in the population might. And that's that's that will remain as something of attention. Um, governing is obviously obviously presents different challenges from getting elected and uh, Anwar is in an awkward coalition, right? And he fell short of a numerical majority in the election. So what is uh, what are some of the most uh, important early signs of how he will govern that you have noticed in the last month? I would say the most important sign, which is a somewhat depressing one, is that we still have no real sense of mm-hmm. what this government is going to push for. Mm-hmm. So its goal seems to be to stay in power. And my mm-hmm. concern, just as a you know sympathetic observer, is that staying in office and not collapsing is going to become so overriding a goal that not much else will happen. So I could be wrong about that. I hope I'm wrong about that. But I I think the main things that we'll see will be essentially valence issues, things that everybody wants to see happen. So things that Malaysia may not be able to afford very well now, like handouts, handouts, everybody loves a good handout, you know, money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we almost immediately saw more of those. Um, and those are in everybody's coalition uh, platform, uh, campaign platform. There is a committee supposedly underway to look at the campaign platforms of the parties that are now in the government, their manifestos, find the common ground. There's actually a lot of common ground. They weren't all that far off. It's just sort of in the mm-hmm. details for the most part. Um, and develop a common agenda, but we have nothing yet. And enough time has passed and enough academics had already done that work of finding how the coalition platforms line up that this shouldn't be all that long a task um, that I'm a little worried about the silence. And so I don't think we'll see the level of reforms that Pakatan had promised had they been in government on their own. Um, I do think we might see some. So. There was almost immediately a call from a member of the cabinet um, who was previously UMNO, uh, then with Mahathir. And, you know, so she's now in this coalition, um, Azalina Othman, to 
separate the roles of the attorney general and the public prosecutor, which is seen as an important move for ensuring greater probity in judicial processes and including investigations of politicians. Um, that could happen. I haven't really heard much more about it since she initially said that. We could see some move toward, um, There's a, there was just an announcement that they will push for restoration of the Parliamentary Services Act, which will basically restore some parliamentary autonomy um, within the policy political system, which would be a good thing. Um, we'll probably see a weaker prime minister, which is also a good thing in a country that's had increasing executive centralization over the course of decades of uninterrupted BN rule. But in terms of what they'll actually push for or what Anwar will actually seek to achieve, the fact that that's still so unclear suggests to me that there probably won't be hugely ambitious goals um, beyond, again, staying in power and presumably riding out a recession to the extent possible. You uh, you said you gave a little sense earlier about how Anwar sort of rose through um, kind of reform oriented political circles over the decades, ties early on to student movements, um, journalist groups, other human rights activists in civil society. You've done a lot of research on civil society in the country, um, you know, and yet it's a country that still has challenges uh, related to uh, freedom of speech, treatment of journalists, uh, treatment of asylum seekers, you know, th those those sorts of issues. Do you see any indications that this will be a government that charts any new ground in relation to civil liberties in the country? Or will those concerns just kind of get washed out with the sort of significant economic challenges that they have to face? To be honest, I wish I knew. Um, I, I don't think it'll get worse. I'm not sure if it will get better. So there have been, there's already been some pushback against some extent of student activism, it seems. Again, that's not something new though. It's more of a continuation. Um, it may be that other forces beyond what the government wants to see happen help to, to determine some of that. So for instance, the simple fact of online media and the fact that now most Malaysians, especially young Malaysians, but not just them, get their news online rather than um, through mainstream media, that itself has made it impossible to regulate media to the extent that used to be the case. Um, and of course, yes, if this were a truly authoritarian state, yeah, controls are possible, but Malaysia is not, and it hasn't been. So instead, we, we do see some greater space for expression than had been the case. In terms of human rights records, I'm not sure that there'll be progress on some of the key issues that have arisen. So things like, very concrete things like establishing um, an independent commission to investigate police abuses. So this has been an issue for years now. Um, there was substantial pushback against this under Pakatan's administration in, after the last election. It's resurfaced as an issue. It's possible the commission that forms could be slightly stronger than what has more recently come up, um, but I don't think there'll be major headway. One area in which the last administration, the the these what were called the backdoor parliaments, these makeshift governments that had governed for the last couple of years, they were about to table a political finance bill, which had been again one of the key Pakatan calls as well, because this is one thing that could help to clean up the political landscape and regularize politics in important ways. 
it's possible that that, which is which is seen as a progressive, civil liberties oriented type of thing, if it helps to curb some of the abuses that we see, that could still happen, except my guess is it won't be so strong as it needs to be. And again, it may be more circumstance and context that makes it possible and that no party right now has a ton of money to spend. And so no one really has a vested interest in protecting their own coffers and their own ability to spend. And instead, everybody might be worried about whichever party has more. So in terms of issues though, like freedom of association or freedom of expression or of the media, my guess is we'll see something of the status quo, which is not the aggressive pushback we've seen at some times in Malaysia's past, but also probably not significant improvements in terms of legal status um, for these different rights. Um, before GE 14, the 2018 election, there was a sense that things were really tightening up, that there was a crackdown. And indeed, right after the Pakatan administration fell in 2020, some journalists were hauled up and things like that. I haven't seen a lot of signs of that sort of anxiety producing crackdown but I don't really get a sense that this is going to be a government with the wherewithal to push aggressively for strength and civil liberties. Uh, so to, turning to another policy area, uh, what do you think the direction of foreign policy under Anwar will be? Uh, in the past, Malaysia has been vocally against Western domination and Western capitalist excess. Uh, in 2019, Anwar visited New Delhi and spoke about the significance of an Asian power. Malaysia has had a steady foreign policy generally, but with the growing tension between USA and China and perhaps even India's role in it, might they be pressurized to choose? Uh, do we have any sense of how this government will approach regional right. politics? We find this issue across Southeast Asia now of whether there's pressure to choose. So mm -hmm. India tends to feature less heavily than one might expect. Um, it, there's no logical reason for that. It just that's mm -hmm. how it tends to be. But the sense that it's China or the US. It does seem that sentiment has shifted more toward US than China, but that has as much to do with pushback against some um, well, Chinese embroilment and corruption mm -hmm. in Malaysia, things like that. Um, the, the possible collapse of these major Chinese funded and Chinese led development projects in Malaysia, for instance, there are all sorts of other reasons, in other words, why there might be pushback against over-reliance or over, overly strong trust in um, on China. I don't expect any major changes in Malaysian foreign policy. We did see Mahathir in particular have a tendency toward grandstanding against the US and the West. And yet even at the height of that, the U.S. was a hugely important trading partner and strategic partner and so on for the U.S., for, for Malaysia. So that's rarely moved beyond the level of rhetoric. Um, and then, you know, occasional protests at the U.S. embassy, for instance, around the Vietnam War back in the day, or certainly around issues of Palestine and Palestinian rights. I don't expect any change to that. There will still not be any support for U.S. support for Israel vis-a-vis -vis pa Palestine and so forth. But in terms of things like trade policy and foreign policy generally, mm -hmm. I would expect a fairly strong pro-Western orientation that's not exclusive of a strong ASEAN orientation, strong ties with the EU, strong ties with everyone, basically. Malaysia sees itself as a middle power and generally tries to get along with everybody else um, and to be where it can be uh, something of a middle middle country, um, you know, in negotiations and things like that. So um, 
in the previous administration, Saifud and Abdullah, as foreign minister, for instance, was trying to play a role in brokering some sort of progress with ASEAN on Myanmar. Um, and that echoes a prior Malaysian role in that vein um, before the transition. Um, he says he wants to continue with that. We'll see um, if he can. Um, but so I, I think I think we may see less of the grandstanding against the West that we've occasionally seen in Malaysia. But I don't think that that will signal necessarily any actual substantive shift in foreign policy. It's and I, this is not something on which I'm an expert, so I, I won't give details. But but I I do know also that one might assume that the rise of Rikatan and the sort of strong Islamist opposition bloc, which which even has a shadow cabinet now for the first time in Malaysia. Um, as well as the fact of Anwar's own Islamist activist roots as a Datwa activist, um, that that might signal stronger ties with the MENA countries, with um, the OIC and so forth. However, because Anwar's ties are more with the Ikhwan, the brotherhood side of things, that in many ways sets him at odds with some of these other strongly Islamist powers in the Middle East in particular. Um, and so, that seems to be an unlikely development. So um, he does have very close ties with Erdogan, with, with Turkey. Um, and so that itself could in some ways shift policy depending on how the next Turkish elections go and things like that, but probably not dramatically. In other words, that's more of a personal connection, um, undying support on both sides, it seems, um, but that's not necessarily reflected in trade measures and that sort of thing. All right. Well, um, maybe we can wrap up with a little bit of a longer view um, okay. on democracy in the in the country and sort of in the mm -hmm. region. I mean, it, it's easy enough these days to find takes on concerns about the status of democracy in the region as a whole, right? Uh, Thailand, the Philippines, Indonesia in very different ways, right? Um, uh, showing some concerning indicators. Um, now in Malaysia, we get a longtime opposition leader. We get a multiple time political prisoner coming into government. Yeah. Um, you know, are there reasons to think that this is, in fact, a pretty optimistic moment for the medium term prospects for democracy and the strength of institutions in the region? Or is there a more complicated story that you uh, would leave us with? I would say it's a neutral moment. <laughs> so, yeah, we do have it's not a negative and that for Southeast Asia is itself a positive. Yeah, yeah. Right. Because we have Can't be taken we for have, granted. Yeah. Yeah, we have clear democratic erosion, democratic backsliding, whatever you want to call it, in a number of other countries in the region. Look at Thailand, look at Myanmar, look at Indonesia, look at the Philippines. Um, so, yes, we do have the former political prisoner, the progressive activist who is now the prime minister. However, he's sharing power. His deputy prime minister, one of his deputy prime ministers, is the head of UMNO, which was the prior longstanding party. Um, and to some extent, because... Zahid, as deputy prime minister, represents the Malay vote that Anwar does not represent. Again, his party had less than 15%. He has the power to exact real concessions and to hold a whip over Anwar to some extent um, to claim that they are the only, only uh, bulwark against a green wave. Because again, that is the rhetoric in Malaysia now. Um, and so in that sense, yes, Anwar is there, but he's there because he's in coalition with his former his former party, but one that he has not gotten along with well with in the past, and that itself may hamstring the ability to enact the agenda that has defined Anwar's coalition. So simply having him in office could be just you know essentially decorative if it doesn't translate into being able to put into practice at least some portions of the progressive agenda for which his party has 
has stood over the years. And so that's where I'm still a bit cherry of saying this is a great democratic moment for Malaysia. It's an ambiguous moment, but it's not, it's no more a negative moment than it is a positive moment. So I, I wrote recently about um, the fact that we don't really see backsliding in Malaysia or transition to democracy in Malaysia so much as we see wobbling, that there's a sort of, you know, slight edging towards one side or another of this democratic continuum or regime continuum, but not a firm move in either direction. And I think at this moment, when we see such regression in so many other places, that's not a bad result. Yeah, well, thanks so much for giving us a sense of the both long-term forces and also the individual actors who in this moment are uh, are jostling over the, the future of the political institutions in the country. Um, and to our listeners, no we're, so, we're so glad to be back with you. Uh, keep your eyes on CAD's Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube and Instagram accounts for future podcast episodes and events that we'll be hosting. Uh, you can subscribe to the Inside Asia podcast on services like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, we'll be back uh, before too long with looks at other dynamics in the region. Thanks so much again, Meredith. Really appreciate Thank it. You.